Yesterday was a special birthday in the Magnuson family. Um, my eldest brother hit a significant milestone. Uh, I won't tell you how old he is, but I think he may have just begun to pick up momentum. And uh, come on, think about it, folks. It's okay. It's okay. You can think about it a little bit. Uh, but we had a wonderful little celebration, and um, a, a, a certain niece of his was very motivated to provide him with a special gift. Uh, uncle James is a very, very generous and kind uncle, and his nieces and nephews adore him for it. And so this particular niece, a certain six-year-old niece, was very motivated, and so uh, at, during the festivity, she came up and gave him a bag uh, that contained in it a $5 bill. A $5 bill with a very sweet card. And of course, that $5 bill was taken from the somewhat scanty money reserves of this certain niece. It reflected this very generous and very sweet spirit. What I thought as I reflected on that in light of our message today was also the perspective, right? Not only of child to adult. I want to give $5 to one who, who has a full-time job, right? I'm going to give you, but also the perspective of adult to child, now, I was there, and James was telling, and James was reflecting on, this is just, you know, such a sweet, a sweet gift. And yet there's something that all of us recognize in that adult-to-child direction that we say, in a sense, you, you, you don't need to do that, right? I, I'm okay. Thank you. Thank you. But you don't need to do that. And I was reflecting on whether you've ever had the challenge of giving a gift to someone who seemingly has need of nothing, or who has the ability to get anything that he or she wants. It would be like having a billionaire in your family, and thinking, what am I going to get this billionaire for Christmas? He or she can literally go and pick out anything they want at any time without any constraint as to value. What can I give them? And if you ask that question, you're in a really good framework to understand Psalm 50. What do you give to a God who needs nothing? Because really, friend, that's what Psalm 50 is all about. God is showing up to complain to his people. And by complain, I literally mean in the legal sense. The first few verses of Psalm 50 are God showing up with an indictment. He is showing up like he is issuing a criminal summons to his people saying, show up in court and explain yourselves. Will you notice with me in verse 1? The mighty God, even the Lord, hath spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun unto the going down thereof. This majestic declaration of who God is in his 
holiness. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God has shined. Our God shall come and shall not keep silence. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very tempestuous round about him. Again, these almost apocalyptic pictures of God in his glorious might and majesty. He, now listen to this, he shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth that he may judge his people. This is the picture. God is calling to his people and he's saying, show up and be judged. Stand before the judge. God is the judge in the black robe and you're also going to see he's the prosecutor. Not a great position to be in if you're the defendant. Gather my saints together unto me. Those that have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. So who are the defendants? My saints. You come and gather around. And the heavens shall declare his righteousness, for God is judge himself, Selah. It's like he's saying, you want to know who the witnesses are in this trial that's coming up? It's the heavens. They're declaring my righteousness. They're declaring my glory. God is judge himself. Now listen, he's going to get into it with them. Verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, and I will testify against thee. I am God, even thy God. So Israel has been called to the carpet. They have been called to the defendant's chair, and now God is going to reprove them. He's going to indict them and challenge them. And what we're going to see tonight is that God, what he's driving at with his people is this question. What do you give to a God who needs nothing? And hopefully tonight, we're going to allow that idea, that question to sink down into our hearts and let it affect the way we think about what you are going to do this week in giving to God that it will affect you this week in how you think about serving God, in how you think about being a Sunday school teacher or a bus captain, about being a mom or dad and seeking to raise children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, about, about having any kind of Christian calling or service. How do you serve? How do you worship? How do you give to a God who needs nothing? The title of the message this evening is simply this, The God Who Needs Nothing. The God who needs nothing. And what I want to do is start first by looking at God's complaint to his people. Secondly, looking at his correction to his people. And thirdly, for us, looking at what I'm going to call the Christian's channel to give to God what he desires, a God who needs nothing. Let's start first of all by understanding God's complaint. And if you'll just pick it up with me in verse number eight, we will just work through this sequentially verse by verse. And I think you'll see it coming out fairly clearly. The first thing is what God's complaint is not. What it's not. He says it here in verse eight. I will not reprove thee for thy sacrifices or thy burnt offerings to have been continually before me. God makes very clear, I'm coming to you in judgment, I'm coming to you with a complaint, with an indictment, but here's not what it's about. It has nothing to do with your sacrifices. The idea here is what God seems to be saying. You see in, in our King James translation that those words, to have been, are in italics. What, what, what God seems to be saying here is, I'm not criticizing you about your sacrifices which are before me. 
He seems to be making a statement about, I'm not coming to you and saying you haven't been sacrificing to me. You have been. Your sacrifices have been continually before me. That's not the problem. Notice then what he goes on to say. For every beast of the forest, I'm sorry, verse 9, I will take no bullock out of your house. I'm not going to take any oxen from you. Nor he goats out of thy folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee. For the world is mine in the fullness thereof. Will I eat the flesh of bulls, or drink the blood of goats? You see what God's saying to his people? He's saying, I'm not complaining to you that you haven't been making the sacrifices. You have been. Again, this was a time when the sacrificial system would have been very much in place and the true worship of Jehovah, at least functionally and ritually, would have been occurring. What does he say? Notice that he, come, that he indicts them with something they were missing about who he was. His complaint to them was, you don't understand what I'm like. I'm not trying to take bulls out of your pens. I'm not trying to take, I don't need he goats out of your flock. Why? He says, well, one, he says, look at verse 13, will I eat the flesh of bulls and, or drink the blood of goats? I don't need to feed on your sacrifices. You don't need to kill them so I can get dinner. Now, maybe this sounds weird or strange, but commentators tell us that in the pagan religions around Israel at this time, people actually believed, worshipers, that they killed animals as sacrifices because their God needed a meal. Is actually a function of pagan sacrificial system. We're going to actually feed our God. We don't want him to get grouchy with us because he's, he's a little hangry. He's, he's, he's hungry and therefore he's grouchy. We, we don't want that, so we're going to feed him. God says, that's not who I am. That's not who I am. But notice also what he says. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee. Even if you were offering me something that I could eat, which you're not, even if you were, do you think I would tell you? Why? Because I own everything. Now listen to this declaration that God's making. He's saying, when you bring me a bull from your stables, from your stalls, I already own it. When you bring me a goat from your flock, it's already mine. I already own them. I own I, for every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountains and, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. I own. So, therefore, the problem is not that you are bringing these sacrifices to me. It is that you are bringing them to me without the acknowledgement, the proper acknowledgement of who I am. Now, let's see if we can dive into this a little bit more. I, what I believe God is indicting them with is this. You are coming to me as if I am dependent on you. Do you see that? That's what he's criticizing them with. You are coming to me as if I need these things from you, when in reality, I do not. Now, I just want to meditate on this for just a few minutes together about who God is and what Scripture reveals him to be. Listen to what uh, Paul says to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17. When he stands up and he says, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. Literally, you are very superstitious. You have all these kinds of idols around. Listen to what he says. 
You men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, just in case they were covering every base. If we don't know of one, let's put an altar up to him. Whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, you don't know him. Him declare I unto you, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Now listen to this. Neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. You see that? He is not worshipped with men's hands like he needs something from those people he's being worshipped from. Now notice the logic that Paul uses seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. Do you see the contrast there? God doesn't need anything from us. He is not dependent on us because he gives us everything. He is the one who is the giver of everything, even to those who are pagan. As scripture says, in him all things consist. Everything holds together by his word. He is the source. He is never the recipient. He is never the recipient in terms of being dependent on us. Listen to what Paul says in this great doxology in Romans 11. He says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Who has he depended on for direction? Or who hath first given to him, there's God being the recipient, and it shall be recompensed unto him again. God is never in the position of owing you anything, friend, nor me. He is never the recipient in that dependent kind of way. Now listen to why. For of him and through him and to him are all things. You see what he's saying? For of him he is the source through him, he is the enabler. To him, he is the ultimate end of all things. This is why scripture says he has made even the wicked. He has even made even the wicked for his glory. Why? For their ultimate judgment. For the day of wrath. In all things, in all ways, God will be glorified. He will be glorified eternally. When we see his plan of redemption come to perfect fruition, there will be no defeats in God's plan. Of him, through him, to him, all things, nothing accepted. So whenever humankind comes to God who is the giver and never the recipient in a dependent sense and acts as if he needs what we are offering, mankind is wrong and God is a complaint. I am not hungry. If I were, I would not tell you. And I don't need to eat your animals. I'm not complaining to you about your sacrifices that are in front of me. I'm complaining my indictment is your mindset in which you are giving it. And when we understand that, we immediately are thrown into, for my eyes, a very practical question for ourselves. How often do we approach God in our service, in our worship, in our ministry, as if he needs us. He needs my work. He needs my Bible reading. He needs my money. He needs something that I am giving to him in a way in which we are presenting ourselves as the giver 
and God as the dependent recipient who then owes us something. We put God in our debt. God says, my people, it never works like that. I am always the giver. And you are always the recipient. Now, this is why we see, secondly, God's correction, God's complaint. I'm not complaining about you bringing sacrifices, but you need to understand who I am when you bring them. I am not the dependent one here. Secondly, his correction. Notice what he says in verse 14. Offer unto God thanksgiving. There's the first command. Second command. And pay thy vows unto the Most High. Third command. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. What you're seeing here is a complete reordering of any view in which God is the dependent one and we are the giving one. Notice here there are three things that are being reordered. The first thing that's being reordered is God's place. Notice each one of those things. The first thing is offer unto God thanksgiving. You say, wait a second, Pastor Peter. He's saying offer unto God. He's saying be the giver. What are you giving him? This word here that says offer in the Hebrew literally means sacrifice. He's literally saying sacrifice unto God, thanksgiving. And this could mean two things. It could either mean that you, his, his primary sacrifice is truly an internal heart of thanksgiving. And he says your sacrifice to me should be an internal attitude of thanksgiving toward me and praise. It could be. He also could be saying this. Whenever you bring your sacrifice... Let it be with a thankful heart. Let it be with gratitude that you're approaching my altar with this bull or with this goat for sacrifice. Either one, the meaning's the same, right? The meaning is this. When you come to God, you are acknowledging him as the giver, not as the recipient. You are giving to God, but you are saying, God, I am thanking you for what? What you have given to me. You are, the, you, are the, you are the giver. I am the dependent one. I am the recipient. I, I was reminded of this because my family and I, we used to have this little ritual whenever we'd go to Dairy Queen. My dad would pull into Dairy Queen. And we always knew what we needed to, to say. As the car pulled into the parking lot, we would be primed to exclaim this loud sing-song, thank you, Papa. Thank, I mean, it was just like, thank you. Why? Well, we, in a sense, we were offering a sacrifice of thanksgiving in honor and in recognition of what would be soon coming to us. But can you imagine if I had instead said to my father, instead of saying, thank you, I had rummaged around in my pocket for a penny that I had found in the parking lot and say, here, Papa, I, I, I've got a coin. I'm going to pay you. My, my father would have said, no, 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 you don't, you don't understand how this works. I have the money. I have the money to finance this. You are the recipient, and so you are offering to me not help to pay. You are not being a giver. You are being a recipient, so acknowledge my place and also acknowledge yours. You are the recipient. 
thank you. Do you see that's how we approach God? What God says is, in light of everything that I have given you, you are not coming to pay me back. You are not coming, in a sense, to to make me the dependent in the relationship. You are offering to me your recognition that I am the giver and that you are the recipient. In other words, it's not just recognizing God's place, the one who is the most high with all power and the supreme giver. It is our place that I am the recipient always. Do you know who missed this? In the Old Testament, a guy named Nebuchadnezzar missed this. The king of Babylon, the great world power at the time. In Daniel chapter 4, here's what Nebuchadnezzar says. The king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? Who's he saying? Who's the giver here? I am. I'm the source. And what happened? God spoke to him. And did you notice what God speaks to him only a couple verses later? He says, And they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and seven times shall pass over thee until thou know. What do you know? That the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will. Nebuchadnezzar, you're not the giver here. I am. And you are only the recipient. And what happens after Nebuchadnezzar's trial? In Daniel chapter 4, after he's driven from the kingdom, he comes back and you just see his overwhelming response of gratitude and thanksgiving. You do rule. You do give it to whoever you will. The message, in that sense, got through. Our place is always the recipient. Notice this even in the next command. Not only offer unto God thanksgiving, but pay thy vows unto the Most High. Now, again, don't think of this as us simply paying back God. The concept of a vow here seems to be one that is made in a time of trouble. A vow that would have been something that, God, I'm in a pinch. I'm in trouble. I think the sense here, when you think of paying your vows, he says, to the Most High, it is ultimately about humility. It is about recognizing that I am low and God is high and my word toward him should be taken seriously by me. I think that is really what he's driving at. And this even comes through more clearly in the next verse, the final command, and call upon me in the day of trouble. Now, why would I call upon God in the day of trouble? Because I know he's the giver and I know I'm not. I don't have the source of strength to deal with the trouble, and so I call upon God. I call upon him in the day of trouble. And then what happens? Notice this. I will deliver thee. I am the giver. You're the recipient. I will deliver you. And then what? And you shall glorify me. In other words, God wants to make clear, he wants to correct for his people God's place. He's always the giver. Our place. We are always the recipient. Always. And he wants to he wants to correct our priority. What's his priority? I will deliver you, and you'll glorify me. Pay your vows to the Most High, as he says, and as the psalmist says in Psalm, I think it's 116, what shall I render to God for all his benefits toward me? I will take the cup of salvation. Whose salvation? Mine? No, God's. And what I'll do? I'll call upon the name of the Lord, and I will pay my vows in the presence of all his people. What happens? God delivers me, I'm going to tell everyone about it. I'm going to pay my vows. 
I'm going to acknowledge that God was the giver and that I was nothing but a humble recipient. You know, that verse right there, call upon me in the day of trouble, it was a wonderful encouragement to me when I was, um, had my uh, surgery nearly 13 years ago, more than 13 years ago, for my brain tumor. I still remember that verse just jumping out and gripping my heart. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. Notice what God is saying again, over and over. You are the recipient. You are dependent on me. I am the giver. I am the source. So recognize it. There's a wonderful, I just bring this out because there's a wonderful example of this of David himself in 1 Chronicles chapter 29. You can go look at it for yourself. This is when uh, David is humbly praying to God because he's about to turn the kingdom over to Solomon and Solomon needs to build the temple and he gives this wonderful speech, this wonderful prayer to God. Listen to what he says. He says, Blessed be thou, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come of thee, and thou reignest over all, and in thine hand is power and might, and in thine hand it is to make great and to give strength unto all. You are the giver. You are the source. Now therefore, our God, we thank thee and praise thy glorious name. Now listen to this. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able to offer so willingly after this sort? For all things come of thee and of thine own have we given thee. You see that? All things come of thee and of thine own have we given thee. God's place, our place, our priority, that God would be exalted. You know, friends, it's a very good thing for us to pause for just a moment tonight and say, what is my view of God and what is my view of myself? Is, am I conscious day after day that God is the sole giver and I am nothing more than a recipient? I think Jesus intended to teach us this in the way we pray every day. He said, after this manner pray, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, your place is as the giver. And now what does he say? Give us this day. We're the recipient. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And how do we close? For thine is the kingdom, and thine is the power, and thine is the glory forever. You are the giver. We are the recipient. May we just embrace this fundamental truth about who God is and about who we are. And third, I want to close by looking at the Christian's channel. The Christian's channel. Because while this doesn't directly speak, at least Psalm 50, does not directly, I think, speak necessarily to the gospel, it actually is flowing underneath it. It is the current in which it is flowing. And here's what I mean. I mean that at the heart of the gospel is the recognition that God is the giver and we are the recipient. I just want to read a couple verses for you from Romans chapter 4 that I hope will bring this out. Listen to what Paul says in his argument developing through Abraham's righteousness that's been accounted to him by faith. He says, for if 
Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now listen to this. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. Stop there for just a minute. When you're an employee, you get paychecks. Why? By grace or by debt? By debt. You worked and the company owed you. You could have sued them if they didn't pay. You owed, they owed you something. It's not grace, it's debt. And the point that he's making is, that is not grace. Grace, he says, but to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly. He's the giver. His faith is counted for righteousness. What is the gospel? The gospel is that salvation is not a ladder that I climb to put God in my debt. Salvation is a bridge in which I am entirely dependent on unmerited favor from God in which I cannot work, in which I cannot give in which God can never and will never be dependent on me. Salvation is the gift of God from a giver to an unworthy recipient. That is the gospel. And because that is the gospel, what we see in our Bibles is that this filters and flows through every single area of our life. The gospel of God's grace is not only that he saves you in an unmerited, in, by showing his unmerited favor, it's that your daily life is dependent on that same grace. It is dependent not on you working to put God in your debt as a dependent being. It is about receiving and returning or giving to him the sacrifice of praise. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 13 says. I think this is a wonderful connection to this passage that we have here. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse, let's start with verse number 10. The author of Hebrews says, we have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. He's talking about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for us and the altar that we have, the cross of Christ being the altar on which the ultimate perfect sacrifice of God was made. And listen to what he says. Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. By him, who is that? By Christ therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. Let us offer to God by Jesus the sacrifice of praise. Friends, how are you going to communicate to God day after day that he is the giver and that you are the recipient by Jesus Christ? What is your channel? It is him. 
He is the only hope that you have before God. He is your only entrance into the presence of God. He is the only bridge by which you may cross to gain acceptance with God. Every single day, every single spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ that is yours day after day is by Jesus. And so therefore, if you want to offer the sacrifice of praise, it must be by Him. You say, what does that mean for the way in which I live my daily life? Well, let's be practical for just one moment. What about the way we serve him in our ministry? How would we approach a God who we desire to serve and we should serve when we realize that he frankly does not need us to accomplish his purposes in the world? How do we do it? We do it in the way that Paul did it. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He said, for I am the least of the apostles that am not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's what you can say. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Do you know, every time especially in a church like this where people are workers. And I look out here and see so many people who are laboring in very sacrificial and very time-intensive ways for the sake of the gospel. You and I must realize that we are not coming to God to give him something that he fundamentally needs. We are not coming to him as putting him in our debt. God, if you do this, you are going to be indebted to me to do something else. That is not it. What are we coming to him with? As Paul says, I labored more abundantly, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. We are coming to him with the grace that he has given us in the first place. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4. He tells us, actually I'll just turn there, 1 Peter chapter 4. Listen to what he says for those who serve. He says, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister or literally serve, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ. How do you serve this week? You serve by the ability that he gives you. And therefore, you are doing nothing more than giving him something that is already his. God, you are the giver. I am the recipient. You know, I, I fear that one of the ways we get burned out in our Christian ministry is because we miss this principle. We sometimes, I fear, get burned out because we begin approaching God with a kind of tit-for-tat, a kind of trade. God, I'll work hard for you, and you're going to make it up for me in other ways. You're going to, in a sense, pay me back for what I've done. And then we work hard and we sacrifice and we labor and we don't see the payoff and we don't see what our in, inner man being renewed day by day because we're not approaching God in reliance on his power and suddenly we're wondering, God, where's the payback that I thought I was getting? And we've missed the whole point all along that God is never dependent on us. That we and everything we do for him are entirely 100% dependent on him. Without me, he can do nothing. How are we going to live lives in a busy working church that remains enduring and faithful? It will only come 
when we recognize day after day that he is the only giver and I can, nothing, I can be nothing more than a recipient, a recipient who is returning his grace to him. Another practical question for us. Hebrews 13 says that we are to offer the sacrifice of praise continually to him. Continually to him. How often do you and I offer the sacrifice of praise to God? How many of you remember how many daily sacrifices there were in the Old Testament? Anyone know? Morning, evening. Two. Morning, evening. Do you know what a shameful thing it would be if our sacrifice of praise to God were any less than very intentionally in the morning and in the evening, just like the sacrifices in the Old Testament? But God goes above and beyond that. He says continually, let your grateful heart be overflowing to him in praise by Jesus Christ. Friend, how are we doing on our contentment? Let me encourage you, if we're understanding who God is and who we are, we can't look at contentment as an optional Christian virtue. Oh, contentment is something that I'm, I'm not doing so well in, but I'll get around to it one of these days. No, friends, when we're not content, when we are not offering the sacrifice of praise to God, it shows that something is broken in the way I view God's place as the soul giver and my place as the, intent, as the always needy recipient. How often am I coming to that position day after day of recognizing, God, you are, and I am. One practical encouragement. Use the Psalms. Use your Bible reading every morning to get you in that position. Start your prayer time with God to say, God, you are God. You are the giver. You are the source. I am not. I am the recipient today. I am the needy one. I need you for anything good that I can return to you. I was thinking about this, maybe a picture that I could leave you with. And I remembered a story from a while ago. Many of you know that I grew up on White Bear Lake. And as at various times over the history of that lake as we were growing up, the lake waters would substantially recede. And you'd have just many feet or many yards even of empty beach and the weeds would grow up and it would get all green and overgrown. And what they ultimately decided, what they ultimately realized was that it was probably the fault of the cities that were around because the cities that were around White Bear Lake had been taking too much water from the ground from the aquifers. And White Bear Lake is a spring-fed lake. And so as they were depleting the resources of this lake, the lake was literally dropping down and getting lower and lower. And there was even a lawsuit in ultimately happened, I think, against the DNR and a number of communities that they had mismanaged the aquifer. And last I knew, White Bear Lake was back up and it was very healthy and a very healthy water level. And I thought, what an interesting perspective because in the reality of things, White Bear Lake is the source. White Bear Lake and its aquifer underneath it is the source of groundwater for so much. 
And yet in the perspective of the homeowners around the lake and the other people, they saw the lake shrinking. We need to return to it. We need to give back to it. And they did. They did, in a sense, and it has been restored as healthy. And I thought, I wonder how we think of God. I wonder if every day we approach God in the morning, we think about him like an ocean that can never possibly be exhausted in his supply and to whom if we tried coming with our small cups of water and pouring it in like we're adding to him, adding something to him, we'd say, God, you you know you don't need me this morning to accomplish your purposes in the world. What if instead every morning we came to him and said, God, I have a cup that I need to get filled up this morning. And I'm going to thank you for it. And I'm going to overflow in gratitude and contentment for what you've given me yesterday and today and you will give me tomorrow. Oh God, I'm filling my cup up from the ocean. You know, friends, that's a lot preferable to thinking that God depends on you so you need to work harder and do a little bit more so that you can pour your cup into the ocean of his resource. Don't get me wrong. Paul said, I labored more abundantly than all of them. But he knew where his cup was getting filled. And it wasn't him. How do you serve a God that needs nothing? How do you worship a God that needs nothing when you come and open your hymn books and sing? How do you give to a God that needs nothing? I'll tell you. You offer to him the sacrifice of thanksgiving continually by Jesus Christ. You pay your vows to the Most High, humbly recognizing who he is and who you are. And when you get in trouble, call upon him. He'll deliver you, and then you'll glorify him.